Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing hydrogen technologies and their potential contribution to achieving net zero emissions. To discuss that with me, I'm delighted to welcome Sinead Lynch, Chair of Shell UK. Sinead, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gavin. I'm very happy to be here. So just to start us off, why are hydrogen technologies being seen as a key contribution to a low carbon economy? Yeah, um, so I guess it does feel a little bit, I think, that hydrogen has moved up the energy agenda, if you like, in recent years. Um, but, but of course, hydrogen is a as an energy carrier and, and indeed as a contributor to a decarbonizing energy system, it, it's not new and there's been quite a lot of focus on it for decades. But but I think the increased interest over the last few years is probably driven by by two drivers. Um, and, and the UK is a good place to look at that. So the fact that today we're talking about net zero by 2050 um, versus and not that many years ago when the target was 80% emissions reduction. And, and so the, the harder to abate sectors they where you might want to use hydrogen had a, a certain amount of cover, I suppose, in the 20% emissions that were still allowed. And, and you could consider, I think, maybe that you didn't need hydrogen or you didn't need to think about hydrogen now. So, so net zero and the net zero legislation, you know, that has driven um, a great deal of very good analysis and modelling from the Committee on Climate Change and Energy Systems Catapult and, and others on, on getting into the real detail of, of what you're going to need to decarbonise to get to net zero by 2050 and and then that's when you really see the the importance of hydrogen in in those harder to abate sectors and then i think the other thing that's moved the dial is is there's been there's been investment and there's been progress in, in hydrogen technology you know on the supply side i guess things like electrolyzers but on the demand side you know hydrogen buses hydrogen ready boilers are now a reality um, and then you add to that the significantly uh, reduced uh, cost of, of renewables, right? And that's critical for green hydrogen. And so all that comes together to really show that hydrogen is needed, but also I think the maybe the art of the possible w- with hydrogen. And I guess the other thing maybe is when I talk about this, it's very easy for people to think that if you're talking about hydrogen, it means that you see it as a substitution for electrification, perhaps. And so I kind of it's really important that we always reiterate that for reasons of, of cost and energy efficiency uh, you've got to electrify as much of our energy use as, as we can yeah so power is 20 percent of our energy mix today it'll be 60 gosh maybe 70 percent by 2050 but that still leaves 30 plus percent of energy use which isn't going to electrify or, or not in the timelines we've probably got to work with um, and so those kind of sectors in industry and transport that need high density molecular energy sources today are going to need them for quite a while to come so that's sectors like steel and cement and chemicals um, and and also certain elements of transports like heavy duty trucking and and shipping and i think increasingly interesting actually aviation so they're all going to need hydrogen and then beyond that you've got hydrogen likely to play an important role in how we heat at least some of our homes in the uk in the future and you've got the role for hydrogen in, in power, in, in allowing deeper penetration of renewables and managing the intermittency. Um, so, so that whole kind of cross-cutting value um, that hydrogen brings, I, I just think that's increasingly clear in a net zero world. And amongst the different sectors that you've mentioned, which ones do you think are likely to benefit first from hydrogen? It's a really good question. I was on a call just this morning, actually, debating that exact point, uh, because, I mean, there are different views, right? You know, we, we know the 
we know I just said that there are sectors that will ultimately use hydrogen, but but the hydrogen technologies are are still in fairly early stages um, of deployment, and and so they face some pretty familiar challenges around cost particularly because they are, for the most part, competing with lower cost alternatives. You know, if you're talking about industry or heating, they're competing and hydrogen competes with natural gas and, and hydrogen today. And it doesn't really matter whether it's blue or green. It costs quite a lot more than natural gas. So, so in a way, the timeline for who's going to go first depends a little, well, somewhat, I think, on where the technologies are moving quickest and, and where they're most likely to become cost competitive against the alternatives in the sector. But actually, I suspect the biggest driver to what goes first will be the level of policy ambition around hydrogen. Yeah. So what policy support is available to get started where and, and where, therefore, can you start to, to scale? Because that, that's the reality of we're trying to build a brand new market with hydrogen. So there's a lot of coordination you're going to have to do in the policy space from supply to infrastructure all the way through to demand. So if I had to put money on one, then I guess um in Shell, we are very active in, in hydrogen globally, and, and we're starting to see quite a lot of progress in, in the area of transport, um, which makes some sense, I think, because high energy, the higher energy density by mass of hydrogen makes it pretty suitable for trucks and trains and, and buses and, and probably ships. And, and so what you tend to see is hydrogen buses are a pretty easy short term win. And, and of course, there are hydrogen buses being manufactured in the UK today with right bus. And, and you also see indications that heavy duty vehicles are going to roll out in Europe and China and the US and starting in sort of that 2023, 2025 timeline. Trains maybe soon after, shipping probably into the 20, maybe 2030 plus. But you see, you see hydrogen trucks from OEMs like Hyundai um, and Daimler. And, and you also see many governments starting to lean in. To, to support the refueling infrastructure. So I think transport's one that looks like it might move a little bit sooner. I think the other one is beyond transport, probably industry. Mm. Um, you know, if you look at where we are today in the UK, and I'll get this number number, but I think it's about 27 terawatt hours of hydrogen, grey hydrogen, so pretty carbon intensive is used in industry. So that's an opportunity to switch that if you've got the supply relatively quickly to, to blue or green. Um, and we, we do see that in, in around Europe, Germany in particular, really stepping in to hydrogen in industry. And, and we ourselves are, are working on a, a 10 megawatt electrolyzer at um, our Rhineland refinery in Germany. And that will produce green hydrogen and be one of the largest hydrogen electrolyzers um, of its kind when it completes, which I hope will be this year. So um, beyond that, I think the rest of the areas where you're going to see hydrogen ultimately play a role in the future, like heating, there's, we're in the sort of trial and demonstration space. Mm. And, and I think you saw that very clearly, didn't we, um, in the Energy White paper um, yep. that we published last year, yeah, around hydrogen neighbourhoods and hydrogen villages. So you've mentioned a number of sectors, which is fantastic. But early on in your remarks, you mentioned the importance of policy actions and the level of ambition from government. And that sort of takes me on to my next point, really. You're, you're the co-chair of something called the Hydrogen Advisory Council, which was set up in uh, 2020. What's the role of that council and, and, and how's it going? Yeah, so the council was set up with a, a very specific purpose, which, which is um, to be a forum for both Bayes and ministerial and sector state level to, to engage with uh, representatives from the hydrogen sector. So it's quite a broad church. 
There are industry reps from IOCs and SMEs from supply and demand side and representatives from the academia side of things and, and indeed the policy space. And really what we're, the stated role is to work together to support the development of the UK's hydrogen economy. But what that kind of translates to at the moment is supporting and informing the development of the UK's strategic approach to hydrogen. So, you know, the UK has committed, UK government has committed to publish a hydrogen strategy. So, so we're quite focused on elements of work that are going to feed into the strategy. But, but there's also quite a lot of work that needs to be done that will go well beyond the, the strategy. And, and it's going well, I think. I mean, I co-chair it with Kwasi Kuteng, who was the energy minister, now the Bay Secretary of State. And, and I think what's been really positive for all the, the, the hack members has been how very focused Kwasi and his ministers have been, or his officials rather, have been on, on really concrete actions. So, so it's not a talking shop. It, it's easy to talk, but it's very much been about how do we put in place um, the pieces um, that create the roadmap so that we're to, to a hydrogen economy from now to 2030. So it's got quite a time limited scope. Um, and what are the activities we need to do in the 2020s if we're really serious about getting the just the foundations of, of a hydrogen market in, in place in, in the next decade? And how do we do that with a systemic view? So, so you really need to be thinking all the way down the value chain. Hence, hence we've got people from, as I say, the supply, the infrastructure and the demand side all, all at the table. So in order to get to that hydrogen economy, we will need to get to grips, I guess, with some of the sort of fundamental technologies. And, and the obvious one is producing the hydrogen. You've mentioned grey hydrogen, blue hydrogen and green hydrogen in the course of uh, your remarks, which is great. So just tease out some of those. Grey hydrogen is as it's produced primarily now by a natural gas, which releases CO2, which I guess is not great. I'm looking at you just to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, no, you're right. So blue hydrogen then, maybe you can explain what blue hydrogen is and, and how it works. Yeah, yeah, sure. There, there are, there's an increasing rainbow of colours in hydrogen. That's been my learning this year. I mean, there's no yellow hydrogen. Yeah, so so uh, so grey hydrogen, yes, straightforward. That's, that's the hydrogen that makes up 90 plus 95 percent of um, the hydrogen that we use today in the UK is grey and as you say it's produced by from generally natural gas although biofuel biomass or coal could be used that you reform which means you just kind of react say that the, the fossil fuel with steam in the presence of a catalyst and you get you get hydrogen and a lot of CO2 that's uh, that goes to the atmosphere so blue hydrogen is very simply grey hydrogen which uses carbon capture and storage to decarbonize the process yeah so so you do get co2 emitted from producing the grey that gets captured um, and then transported um, by pipeline usually not always but usually so in the uk it will be the case to offshore and and injected into into reservoirs where it is stored infinitely and then the blue hydrogen produced, you know, obviously can be used for all of the sectors like transport or heating industry. And, and of course, it's, it's, it's a lower carbon intensity than, than the grey hydrogen. Maybe it's just me. I've heard about carbon capture and storage for many years. Is the technology there? Is the level of investment there to make that a real success for the UK? I would say we're getting there rather than it's in place today. So, so yeah, the Committee on Climate Change has gotten increasingly clear, I think, in its guidance to government that carbon capture and storage will be a, I like this quote, a necessity and not an option. And, and that's mainly because 
it will be hugely important in, in addressing some of these sort of hard to abate emissions from heavy industry and power. And, and it isn't a new technology. You know, we, we do know how to do it. It's, it's actually quite a well-proven method. It uses technologies that we're familiar with. They exist um, to capture, to transport, to store. And, and I guess globally, there's about 21 maybe CCUS projects up and running around the world. Um, Shell operates the Quest project in Canada and that has um, captured and stored about 5 million tonnes of CO2 over the last five years. And then we've learned huge amounts by doing it. But the issue, of course, is that that's Canada and we need this technology and this investment available in the UK. And that is definitely work in progress. But I, I think recent announcements have been positive. You know, the government's 10-point uh, plan and, and the energy white paper. They have an ambition in there that we want to be capturing 10 million tonnes a year by 2030. And, and they commit quite a lot of money. I think it's about a billion pounds now to, to support two carbon capture and storage clusters in the UK by 2025 and another two by the end of the decade. Um, and that's very positive because there's five CCUS or carbon capture industrial clusters under development in the UK today. From High Net in the northwest to Teesside and, and Humber projects um, in the northeast to the Acorn project in Scotland. And many of them have got either Blue Hydrogen as the anchor project uh, to underpin the first stage or, or the follow on project. So, so as you can imagine, with that amount of project development activity, there's been a, a lot of engagement and work with Bayes over the last couple of years on, on business models, because that's what we're missing fundamentally to attract the investment. We, we need a revenue model and we don't have it. And, and what I think is quite good and what the UK government is doing, I think, better than others is it's not just about throwing lots of capital and subs, uh, capital contributions. It's about trying to create business models. So, so Bayes did publish a, a rather large document detailing all their thinking on business models just before Christmas. Um, and, and we're now in the process of really for the UK, we need to see a couple of these clusters, these CCUS industrial clusters go into feed and, and ultimately into take FID. And of course, that depends firstly on the outcome of the technical work that's ongoing in the various clusters, but also on that progress in, in the policy and business models and, and regulatory framework required. But I see a level of focus and commitment to CCUS in the UK that, that frankly, I guess, was 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 lacking in, in years gone by. And also it's it's much more thought about in the system sense. So in other words, you're looking across what the value of CCUS is to the entire energy system, not just considering it as a technology that decarbonizes this power plant or, or this particular industry. That does sound like there's real both government and, and financial and industry commitment to it. I'm interested in the balance between blue hydrogen and green hydrogen, which of course would be hydrogen just produced by renewable energy. And given that the cost of renewables has come down hugely over the last years, would it not be better for the UK really just to go straight for green hydrogen rather than blue hydrogen? That is certainly um, a, a view that, that's held by, by some in, in this space. And, and I, I completely understand why that would be an attractive option. But when you look at what we need to do in the UK to get to net zero by 2050, then you find that you need both hydrogen production technologies in the next decade if you're really going to move at the pace required for energy transition. So, so one of the one of the kind of guiding principles in, in the Hydrogen Advisory Council and, and very much alignment between government and, and industry figures on this is we need a twin track approach. So, so you need the green and you need the, the blue as, as well because they're on different timelines. So if you think about what might happen 
maybe over the next five years, you know, we, we have small scale green hydrogen production, you know, electrolysis projects, you know, operational today in the UK. And, and over the next five years, you, I think you'd expect to see green hydrogens come, green hydrogen projects rather come online, hydrogen for transport hubs or for industrial clusters. So, so somewhat point to point, maybe in, in the supply and demand. Um, and, you know, as we even ourselves in the UK, we have hydrogen refueling, green hydrogen refueling is on three of our four courts already and three more in, in development. And as I say, we're looking at you know, green hydrogen production and refineries around the, the world. But to get to scale with green, you know, to go beyond a small scale, you need to scale the electrolysis, the electrolyzer technology and you need to reduce the cost, which should come with the scale. Uh, and you need access to a lot of low carbon available green uh, electrons. Yeah, because power cost is a huge value driver in green hydrogen. And the reality is, with all, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, we, because we have to electrify a lot of our energy system in the UK, you know, a lot of the, the ramp up in renewables, and we've got a, a fantastically ambitious program in, in offshore wind, for example, in the UK, but all of that will be needed for to electrify other areas of the economy. And so it probably won't be into the 2030s where we'll have some more of those low cost green electrons, which means that in the medium term, scale is likely to come from blue hydrogen. Yeah. And but of course, that depends. And, and you raised this previously on the CCUS clusters being up and running by by the 2020s. And then you can start to build a, a bigger, I wouldn't say mass market, but a larger market for hydrogen. But I think in doing that, in building that that sort of, you know, um, scale with blue, there is a clear understanding from all stakeholders, you know, um, about the role for green hydrogen and how important it is. And, and actually what we should expect in terms of cost reductions in, in the decades to, to come. So it, it's, you know, and, and then in the end game, once you get to 2050 and there's um, Aurora have done some nice modelling on this. Actually, I was looking at it this morning with them. How much you're going to need in 2050? It depends on a number of things. You know, how much hydrogen you use in the economy. If you if you find that hydrogen is, you know, really intensively used in, in not just heavy duty transport and industry, but in, you know, decarbonising lots of our homes then you are likely to need more blue in the mix, whereas if maybe you've, hydrogen is, is more sort of heavy duty and industry and not so much in heating, then you probably find that the, the dominant technology, if you like, is green. So there's quite a lot, there's quite a lot um, still to work out on hydrogen. You know, we're a long way from having all the answers. We just know we need it. How would you say the UK compares with other countries in the way that it's approaching hydrogen and development of these technologies? The 10 point plan was very helpful because that that gave us an initial kind of 2030 hydrogen production ambition of, of five gigawatts. So that helped because that, I guess, it frames maybe the, the size of the prize in, in the medium term for industry to invest against. And that puts the UK kind of alongside, I guess, the most ambitious countries globally. If, if you think about the EU, um, they're targeting about 40 gigawatts of, of green hydrogen in the same time period. You'll read some various articles about people's views on who's where. But I mean, I think the reality is all countries have a lot to do to put in place policy frameworks, yeah, to orchestrate the policy measures between supply and demand, to build the regulatory regimes and make the regulatory changes needed for to bring hydrogen at scale into the energy system. And, and none are there yet. I also think the UK has some real advantages against other countries, um, which we shouldn't lose track of. I mean, we can use both blue and green because we are actually quite fantastically advantaged with our natural resources, both offshore wind 
but also our, you know, our oil and gas resources, particularly gas, but also the infrastructure we have and um, the industrial base, the supply chain, the skills, you know, there's there's um, the academic excellence we have in this space. So, so we're really well placed to do both, which I think does give us a competitive advantage in terms of capabilities against other countries. But I guess I would say because we in Shell, you know, hydrogen is a very important part of, of um, our energy transition strategy. And so we're active in it in a number of countries. And, and there are a few countries where we're a bit further ahead, maybe, than in the UK. And that is very much driven by the policies in those countries, which are very have been very shaped and targeted to, to drive uptake of, of hydrogen. So, I mean, a good example in transport is California. You know, they've got the low carbon fuel standard that mandates that the OEMs, when they import cars, have a you know, growing percentage of zero carbon vehicles. And, and so, therefore, you know, they are driven to send those vehicles to California. And that, of course, creates opportunity for fuel suppliers like ourselves. We've got, a, I don't know, I think about eight light duty refueling stations in California already. That's going to grow to beyond 50 uh, because of recent uh, funding between, you know, collaboration between government and um, California government and industry. And, and we're also part of a consortium building out uh, three new large capacity refueling stations for heavy duty hydrogen fuel cells. So, so you can see that when you've got the policy, the mandates, whether they're mandates or their incentives, when you've got the policy uh, levers, uh, you tend to to get the investment move quicker. And so I think that's really a key learning. And you see that in Europe around heavy duty transport, actually, again, you see there's, there's some very good consortiums coming together to really create the conditions to, to have large scale rollout of hydrogen trucking infrastructure across Europe over the next decade or so. And again, that attracts the vehicles, which attracts the investment in the infrastructure, and it becomes a bit of a virtuous circle. So, so in that area, I think that's really what the UK will be focusing on, I hope. Assuming this goes well and assuming the UK starts to put its policy in place, uh, including, you know, through the Hydrogen Advisory Council and so on, map out what a positive next five to 10 years looks like. Because 2050 is a long way away and we know where we want to get to. But what does the next decade look like if we get this right? Getting it right means we've got we've got two challenges that we've got to overcome in the next decade. One is affordability uh, of hydrogen. And that means you need to take the existing supply projects that, that we, we have in the green space and, um, and that we're and we need to scale them up. And in, in sort of partnership with that, we need to we need to launch one or two blue hydrogen projects, certainly in the next the next five to seven years. Um, and then I think it is about getting smart on um, how we synchronize policy measures around supply and, and demand, because this won't work any other way. You know, that, that sort of lovely field of dream strategy, if you build it, they will come. We can build a lot of hydrogen supply, that the demand won't come at the pace and scale we needed to. So, so you've got to get that right. And, and therefore, what the next decade looks like is really strong commercial demonstration of hydrogen uh, as a fuel. Yeah. And, and in all the sectors, I think in industry, absolutely through the CCUS clusters and, and the green hydrogen projects in those clusters also in, in transport. And again, like I said, you can start with buses 
they're there today to a certain extent. Rightbus can, is, is providing them. Um, and I think there's quite a lot of demand if you get the, the support correct. And then in heating, we, we do a lot of demonstration. We trial, you know, we try, we've already trialed at Keele University, putting, replacing in a, in a sort of closed system hydrogen into the into the gas grid and seeing how the appliances and the customer experiences. Now we're looking at, you know, the next level of, we've got the live demonstration, I think, or live project putting hydrogen into the, the main grid. And then we need to build out and learn. And, and linked to that, of course, we'll be building standards yeah, for low carbon production, getting our heads around what regulatory changes we need to make when. And I think in parallel to that, because there's a lot to do still in the in the innovation space, continuing to, to invest in innovation. But if we can get the right scale up in sectors like transport, where, you know, the commercial case um, is, it's not as far away, maybe, as it is in other in other sectors, and we can lean into the industrial um, cluster model with blue hydrogen and CCUS, and then we can continue to demonstrate the role for hydrogen and heating. Then I think by the time we get to 2030, we hopefully have the five gigawatts of production or more in place. Because I suspect a little bit like offshore wind, we got to get started. But once we actually get started, you know, we are going to see costs come down very significantly. And of course, in parallel, our offshore wind um, industry will be growing at pace, right? We're looking at 40 gigawatts um, ambition by 2030. And so again, you start to see those lower cost electrons come through. So, so if that all comes together, then I, over the next decade, we can maybe expect to see this develop through what I would call hydrogen hubs. Yeah. So, so industrial clusters and ports where you get the smaller scale hydrogen industry developed, you know, a bit of transport, a bit of industry, and maybe some trials on heating. And then as you move through the 20s, you can expect those hubs to get bigger, to connect, to form broader hydrogen clusters, to start to connect the regions. And then you start to get, I think, the, the makings of the hydrogen market. Fantastic. It sounds like it's going to be an incredibly busy but exciting decade. That's the end. That's all we have time for. Sinead Lynx, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, my guest was Sinead Lynch, chair of Shell UK. The issue of hydrogen technologies and their contribution to the UK reaching net zero is the subject of a webinar the Foundation is hosting on the 24th of February. Details of that webinar, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website, you'll find details of all our previous events, our journal, regular blogs and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week, I'll also be discussing hydrogen technologies, this time with Richard Halsey from the Energy Systems Catapult.